Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Dolcebo Inc. Third Quarter 2020 Earnings Conference Call. All participants are currently in a listen-only mode. Following the presentation, we will open the line for a question and answer session for analysts. Instructions will be provided at that time for research analysts to ask questions. I would now like to turn the call over to Dolcebo's Investor Relations, Dennis Fong. Please go ahead, Dennis. Thank you, operator. Before we begin, Docebo would like to remind listeners that certain information discussed today may be forward-looking in nature. Such forward-looking information reflects the company's current views with respect to future events. Any such information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those projected in these forward-looking statements. For more information on the risks, uncertainties, and assumptions related to forward-looking statements, please refer to Docebo's public filings, which are available on CDAR. During the call, we will reference certain non-IFRS financial measures. Although we believe these measures provide useful supplemental information about our financial performance, they're not recognized measures and do not have standardized meanings under IFRS. Please see our MDNA for additional information regarding our non-IFRS financial measures, including for reconciliations to the nearest IFRS measures. Please note that unless otherwise stated, all references to any financial figures are in US dollars. Now, I'd like to turn the call over to Docebo CEO, Claudio Erba. Thank you, Dennis, and good morning, everyone. I hope you are all keeping safe and well. Joining me on today's call is Ian Kitson, our Chief Financial Officer, and Alessio Artufo, our Chief Revenue Officer. In the third quarter, we continue to see strong momentum across our business, driven by the increased need of digital training around the world and growing demand for Docebo's products and services. Our ARR at the end of the third quarter grew by 55% year-over-year to $65 million. And this was supported by subscription revenue growth of 54% and total revenue growth of 52%. The strong growth in revenue along with disciplinated investing resulted in our first positive adjusted EBDA quarter, a milestone that we have reached a year faster than expected. The health of our business, despite these unprecedented times for the global economy, is allowing us to restart investing into growth as maximizing profitability is not our main target at this stage. I should point out change we have made this quarter on how we report total customer count. Previously, we counted two different departments with the same organization that used two separate instances of the table as two customers. However, we think, we think investors like us would see this an example lend and expand. We have adjusted our customer count in the in DNA to reflect this change in definition and the single logo is counted as a single customer, regardless of, of how many departments we sell into. This had only modest implication on our average contract value today but it will provide metrics that better reflect the performance of our business going forward. As we focus on expanding our product suite and increasing adoption of Docebo across multiple departments within a large organization. At the end of the third quarter, we had 2,025 customers. Our average contract value grew both quarter over quarter and year over year to nearly 32,000. This was driven by the higher value of our new customer addition, where the average contract value was approximately 50,000. We had another record quarter of a new logo sales and upsell performance. These spanned a broad range of use cases across different industries, showcasing the flexibility of our platform. In September, we announced that Amazon AWS had selected the table for a multi-year agreement 
to deliver AWS training and certification products to its vast network of clients and channel partners across the globe. This is a great testament to the strength and scalability of our platform, and we were honored to be selected by them. Other new customers we were happy to add in the third quarter include Economical Insurance, SiriusXM, and the World Anti-Doping Agency. Economical was looking for a modern learner-centric platform and selected Docebo for its ability to deliver a personalized learning experience to train both internal employees and their broker partners. SiriusXM chose Docebo for internal training to support onboarding and professional development. And the World Anti-Doping Agency selected Docebo for global athlete education practitioner training, as well as creating an opportunity for community and peer learning. We also had a number of great customer expansion wins. In the third quarter, we expanded our business with Sygenta Group, the world's largest agrochemical company. Previously used within a small pocket of the organization, Sygenta now looks to scale learning across the entire organization, and Docebo technology will play a crucial role on this. We are also thrilled to announce that in Q3, Docebo was selected by one of the largest operators of quick service restaurants in the world to scale their learning across the globe. Originally signed in November of 2018 to train 3,000 restaurants and locations, beginning in 2021, Docebo will extend the training across 24,000 locations worldwide and will include some of world's most prominent and iconic quick service restaurant brands. Our OEM business is also continuing to progress, growing both quarter over quarter and year over year, and is our largest single contributor to our ARR. Onboarding our first OEM partner and developing the Chebos white label solution took more than a year from initial agreement to first revenue. Naturally, we learn a lot during this experience and are able to move much faster now. In the third quarter, we realized the first revenues from a second OEM partner just one month after signing our initial agreement. Every OEM agreement is different and the revenue timing is not something we directly control, but we are excited about the potential for OEMs to become an increasing contributor to our business over time. Moving on to our product, in September, Docebo was recognized as the first learning management system of 2020 by learning industry. At the annual Brandon Hall Learning HCM Excellence Award, we were proud to receive a 14 Excellence Award alongside our customers. We are now taking the same approach in building a best-in-class LMS to expand Docebo into a multi-product suite that support learning needs across the training cycle. Last week, we were excited to announce the closing of our first acquisition of Formatrix. This acquisition provides us with two significant benefits. First, they are innovators and leaders in learning impact analysis, which means we will have the capability to cross-sell our customer a power survey engine that captures qualitative data and the real feedback to determine the effectiveness of their learning strategies, understand the retention of knowledge, and incorporate the feedback loop to measure return on learning. This product has been rebranded and launched as Docebo Impact that we can sell alongside both Docebo LMS customers and customers that are not using the Docebo LMS. Second, Formatrix gives us a physical presence in France. France is one of the largest economies in Europe. It is a mature market for online learning, and having a local presence is important to have meaningful success there. In summary, we are seeing positive momentum across all the main pillars of the growth strategy we outlined at our IPO, including new logo sales, land and expand, OEM, and product expansion. We are still not immune to overall macroeconomic challenges, that may arise like a second wave of COVID that could bring a potential threat to our customer businesses and our revenues. But we believe we are still only scratching the surface 
on the market potential for digital learning. And that is why we will continue to invest in position the table for growth in the future. With that, I will now pass the call to Ian to speak the financials. Thank you, Claudio, and hello, everyone. As always, you find a detailed breakdown of our financial results for the three months ended September 30th, 2020, in our press release, MD&A, and financial statements, which are now available on our website and on CDAR. We also now have a slide deck company, our earnings call discussion, that is available on our investor relations website. For those who want to follow along, I'm starting my remarks on slide four. As Claudio indicated, we saw growth on all fronts this quarter and are very pleased with our results overall. Total revenue grew to $16.1 million, an increase of 52% from the prior year period. Subscription revenues grew 54% from the prior year and were 15.1 million or nearly 94% of total revenue for the quarter. Professional services revenue in the third quarter was 1.0 million, an increase of 27% from the prior year period. Our new logo additions and upsell performance in the third quarter established a new record for us, and I was particularly pleased by the fact that we experienced lower churn in the quarter. After seeing an increase in the second quarter from companies that were being most impacted by the pandemic. This resulted in net ARR growth of $7.6 million in the third quarter when compared to the second quarter of 2020. At the end of the third quarter, we had $64.6 million in ARR, an increase of 55% from the $41.7 million at the end of the third quarter in 2019. As we have noted in most previous calls, while ARR is not an accounting measure, it is the key metric that we use to evaluate our progress as it is an excellent predictor of future revenue. The growth in ARR was driven by an increase in the number of customers as well as average contract value. Our number of customers increased to 2025 at the end of the third quarter up from 1,632 at the end of the third quarter of 2019. Average contract values, or ACV, increased to approximately 32,000 at the end of the third quarter, up 25% from 26,000 at the end of the third quarter of 2019, and is up from 27,000 at the end of the first quarter of 2020. Slide five shows a gross profit for the third quarter, which was $13.2 million compared to $8.5 million in the prior year period, an increase of 56%. As a percentage of revenue, gross profit margin was 82.1% of sales, an increase from 80.1% of sales in the prior year. This improvement in gross margin was driven by the realization of some benefit of scale in our infrastructure costs. And going forward, we expect gross margin to remain in the current range with some potential to move higher, maybe up into the 82 to 85% range over time. On slide six, you can see a summary of our operating expense lines. Total operating expenses for the third quarter increased to $13.9 million compared to 11.6 million for the prior year period, an increase of 20%. Included in our third quarter results is a foreign exchange loss of $400,000 that relates primarily to the cash held in our balance sheet and therefore is for the most part unrealized. Operating costs excluding this loss were 13.4 million and were generally in line with the 13.3 million in operating costs excluding foreign exchange impacts that we reported in the second quarter of 2020. Strong growth in revenue and improved gross margin, along with staple operating expenses, resulted in our first adjusted EBITDA positive quarter as a public company. We reported adjusted EBITDA of $0.6 million for the quarter, compared to a loss of $1.4 million in the prior year. We also reported a net loss of $1.2 million this quarter compared to a $3.7 million net loss for the prior year. And as we just noted, 
the net loss for the third quarter also reflects the same $400,000 foreign exchange loss. One implication of our positive adjusted EBITDA performance this quarter was that we were essentially free cash flow neutral as well. Looking at our balance sheet, in August, we completed a financing in which we issued treasury shares for gross proceeds of $18 million. Cash at the end of the third quarter was $60.8 million, and we carry no debt on our balance sheet. Looking forward, I think it's important to remind investors of some of the comments we made on our second quarter earnings call, as they still apply today. We are in the process of executing our hiring plan to add about 50 people to support our ongoing growth. While we would expect to see operating leverage growing in our business, in the intermediate term, most of this will likely come from the G&A line. Achieving positive EBITDA this quarter was a great milestone for us. But as Claudio said earlier, being EBITDA positive was more an outcome of this year's unusual circumstances, and we do not intend to necessarily manage the business to remain EBITDA positive going forward. Instead, our focus will remain on optimizing our customer acquisition costs to maximize revenue growth as long as there is a strong return on that investment. With that, I'll turn it back to the operator now to take some questions from the analysts. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, we will now take questions from research analysts. Should you have a question, please press the star followed by the one on your touchtone phone. You will hear a three-tone prompt acknowledging your request. If you are using a speakerphone, please lift the handset before pressing any keys. In consideration of other callers and time allotted, we do ask that you please limit yourself to two questions. First question comes from Robert Young at Canaccord. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, the uh, positive EBITDA, you just said that not to expect it to continue, but um, should we still think of the, um, uh, the, the rough guidance of hitting free cash flow positive exiting 2021, or, or are you signaling that uh, growth at this level is more important and you're willing to push that out? Um, ciao, Rob. Can you hear me? Claudio speaking. Yes. Perfect. So, um, you know, our, we, we think that the market is uh, very fragmented and that there are a lot of opportunities to catch more quotas of this market. Um, that said, uh, and, and we can do it in several ways, uh, uh, developing new products, investing in sales and marketing, uh, uh, op- be open to new geographies and stuff like that, which is part of our comprehensive strategy. That said, when we say we want to continue invest on growth, I will add one word. We want to continue invest on growth efficiently. That, and, and uh, I mean, that means that we are not uh, uh, to burn cash just for the sake of unsustainable growth. Uh, the metrics that we really love and Ian Kitson mainly love is the cost of customer acquisition, which is the KPI we want to keep under control as, uh, as strict as we can. I don't know if uh, Ian wants to add something on that. No, I think that's that's fair, Claudio. You know, Rob, we 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 said a couple of times this year that our hiring was restricted during the second quarter. We would have continued to grow our cost base and and would not be EBITDA positive if if uh, if COVID hadn't been around. That's what I meant when I said the the acceleration of becoming EBITDA positive was a function of circumstance. Um, what, what all we're trying to say at this point is we are going to continue to aggressively grow this company's revenue base. But as you know, as Claudio has, has repeatedly said, it's always going to be in the context of making sure that the return on investment is appropriate. Yeah, and Rob, I, w- I want to add another point. I mean, there is this uh, false signal, which is a trap, where uh, COVID created 
extreme efficiencies on companies because companies were able to save on costs. Some part of these costs were investment for the future. I mean, not doing exhibitions, not having the possibility to travel and stay in touch with the team for all the companies as a cost. So another element we, we want to focus, we want to stress is that we are aware of that and we are investing hard to mitigate this investment which have not been done but needed to find an alternative to continue to build the pipeline. So the efficiency on cost is also a trap if not correctly addressed. Okay, thanks for all that color. Um, I also curious about some of the timing of the uh, the wins and the uh, the ARR growth, which was ahead of top line growth. I guess that would suggest that some of these deals came in late in the quarter. And uh, the second piece is uh, some of the wins you announced, including this quick serve win. I think in the press release you suggested it would ramp in 2021. And so should we think of ARR benefiting from that deal in uh, the current quarter, um, the Q3, Q4, or, or even Q1. Maybe we could talk a little bit about um, the, the, the large wins and how they uh, impact ARR the next couple of quarters. Sure. So the the, the quick serve win will hit our numbers, uh, both ARR and and revenue in uh, in the first quarter. Rob, everything else is being reported. And timing in the quarter was were the some of these large deals later in the quarter? Uh, yeah, I think that's that's fair. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the the last month and a quarter is always a uh, always tends to be a strong month. So you know, if if I'm, I'm I think the best thing, if, if you're looking at the numbers and thinking of where they were weighted, if you assume it basically came over evenly over the quarter, all of the ARR, you're probably reasonably reasonably accurate. Okay. And last and little tiny one. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Claudia. Do you want Do you want to give some more color or operational details on the ARR and distribution? Sure. Look, what, 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 on, on top of what Ian said and, and, and Robert, it is, it is generally true that, as, as you know, particularly larger deals tend to have a higher concentration at tail end of the quarter. That is generally true. Um, um, I, I'd say that certain large deals, uh, um, for example, AWS, uh, are so programmatic and are so uh, managed over time that um, we 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 try to manage them, uh, you know, with, without having to necessarily push them towards the end of the quarter, and so in that case, that did not happen. But it, but it's but it's true um, that the rule of end of quarter for larger deals um, uh, re remains valid. So your inference uh, is correct for the most part. Okay, and then you said that the churn was a little bit better than you'd expected, Ian. Um, Q4, is there any seasonality in Q4 from some of the smaller customers that, or it, would you expect that to kick up just seasonally or, you know, as uh, some of the companies or customers impacted by COVID might be coming to the end of their um, their existing contract? And I'll pass the line. Sure. Um, you know, it's interesting. When, when I look historically, and, and this is not what I would typically expect, and, and honestly, I don't know if it's just a, an artifact of circumstance or whatever, but Q4 churn is, is not historically uh, our worst quarter, and, and I would have instinctively said it would be, but it's not. Um, so when, when, when we look at Q4, and uh, Alessio has done a great job in putting a team together and, and, and managing our churn, better than what we have in the past um, so, so we're beginning to get a little bit more visibility into what we think is going to happen 
I'm I'm reasonably comfortable that there aren't going to be any shocks in, in Q4 like we had in the second quarter. But guys, um, let's not forget that uh, we, we are happy about the vaccine, but the COVID is not gone. So if the COVID will stay longer, uh, there will be companies that are fragile, but still operating that will suffer. So there are some variables that cannot be evaluated with the standard historical model. So COVID is, is, is still a factor here. Thank you. The next question comes from Daniel Chen at TD Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning, and congrats on a great quarter. Your deployments seem to be getting larger and larger. Uh, you've been targeting departments of large enterprises, but should we expect you to start doing more of these global deployments like you're doing with this uh, quick service operator? Um, so, first of all, the, if, if, uh, let's, uh, let's refer to AWS. AWS is a large deal, but it's a department deal because it's made to train uh, a specific vertical in the company, which are uh, partners and so on and so on. And the same, if you go into a big restaurant chain, uh, these projects are projects made to train the restaurant's owners and operators. So it's a large deal, but it's, a, it's still a departmental deal. It's not an ultra-global project with a lot of consulting activities that covers all the departments, because we think uh, that this kind of project, I mean, one size cannot fit all in e-learning. So if you have to think, to imagine a large check signed to the CEBO, probably will be a large departmental deal, so like the AWS one, and not a global comprehensive project that cover multi-departments. Okay, that makes sense. But as, as your as scale, uh, as, you, as you continue to gain wallet share with these customers, when your deployments grow within their companies, do you have customers that want to adopt your solution across the entire enterprise, across multiple, multiple departments? And are you at a scale yet that you might be able to do that soon? Um, usually, but uh, I mean, usually what happens is that department negotiate their deal on their own. There is not a centralized orchestrator, let's imagine the HR, that buys the platform for the sales academy or buys the platform to empower the help desk team. What happens is that they can leverage the Docebo extended enterprise technology buying one only Docebo um, instance, but with the extended enterprise module that have an independent segmentation of the platform itself, which, uh, which is different technologically, I mean, methodologically speaking, of the approach to have one department that orchestrate all the learning. I mean, we, we never have imagined an LMS managed by the HR department that will deliver sales training to the sales academy. In this case, there will be a unique LMS with multi-layout, multi-entry points, multi-domains, where there are different administrators that are the owner of their business unit that will train their own, um, their own audience. Okay, that's helpful. And then with regards to your, your growth strategy, you did mention that you're expecting to hire 50 people, but what role do acquisitions play here? Should we expect you to do more acquisitions like four metros that give you a beachhead in some key markets? So, um, the Docebo growth strategy is mainly based for the future on the two main pillars. The pillar number one is to become a learning suite. The fact that now Docebo have two products, Docebo Impact and Docebo LMS with all the add-ons and modules, it's the first step to extend our offering to cover all the training cycle. 
That means from learning culture to content production, whatever it is, LMS, content deliver, learning impact, and learning analytics. So the first step is having more product to sell to our customer base and to new customers. The second is geography expansion. Geography expansion means, for example, that for metrics, which was performing incredibly well in France, was not that uh, present in US, where we are very strong with our sales machine. And so, using for metrics to have an office in France, which is a very local market, which uh, needed to be, you know, the negotiation, the contract need to be in French, there will need to be a cultural alignment, is the footprint that we needed to have more success in France, where we have already a lot of customers. And you can expect that in the future we will cover some other meaningful country. Meaningful means with a lot of internal demand with new offices. Uh, the acquisition is a part of our multi-product strategy, but it's not the only strategy we are pursuing to become a multi-product company, because as you know, we have a lot of new products that after one year and a half of R&D are now ready or, or are already in beta testing in our custom on a, to, to, with some of our customers that are helping us to validate the product. That's it. Acquisition is part of the multi-product strategy, and if the target of the acquisition is in a specific country we need to cover, it's a good thing because we don't have to open an office on our own. Okay, and the final question for me, um, because you mentioned that the customers mm -hmm. for Metris are strong in France but not so big in America, how big is that cross-sell opportunity for both selling to you know, you know what we did when, uh, when, when we started talking with Formatrix, and this happened, uh, I mean, uh, we, are, we are in touch in terms of partnership um, in, since a couple of years. And we thought that the product was great, but they, 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 they shared with us that they, have, they, they were struggling on selling in U.S. So we bring, the, we bring Formatrix to our customer event. I don't remember if in Boston or in Toronto and they opened the booth. When our customer went to the booth and tried the product, they say, I want this integrated in the table. And then we started figuring out that there was a need in the United States on uh, having an, uh, a tool that assess the return of learning, which is uh, you know, the efficacy of the training that you do, uh, that was not covered by almost anyone because the survey system is, is another tool. It's a, it's a simplified system to, to, to run surveys. For Matrix itself, as also a million bench industry benchmark pre-mapped. So when we run a learning impact analysis, we can tell to our customers how they are positioned compared to the industry to a specific training that they have delivered in terms of satisfaction and return of learning. So the fact that we run this empiric test, opening a boot in our customer event, and our North American customers were excited, started triggering in my mind that maybe we don't have to partner with a company like this, but we have to buy it because there is an incredible upsell and cross-sell opportunity. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Your next question comes from Stephanie Price of CIBC. Please go ahead. Good morning. Congratulations on the, the, uh, the MHR OEM agreement so quickly. Uh, I'm just wondering what the, the pipeline of other OEM agreements looks like here. Well, um, you know, I can say it looks bright, but bright means that OEM can shift by six months easily. Um, that said, we are starting learning. I mean, we are starting learning on how to pitch the OEM integration. We start learning how to better engage our OEM partners. We start uh, learning how to deploy fast the OEM. And uh, there is another uh, opportunity, which is not completely related to the HR platform, but now talent management platform 
platform are becoming uh, uh, an interesting OEM vendor because the shift that the talent, the old school talent management platform had, which is, you know, identify skill, internal mobility, uh, upselling, upskilling, sorry, cross, uh, uh, cross skilling, reskilling, are some, are all actions that trigger one only thing, training, because you can, you can, you can only upskill your workforce to the training, you can reskill your workforce to the training. So, uh, alliances like uh, talent management and similar software, performance support, uh, enablement, and stuff like that, are all uh, good targets for us. The Python is good. We are speaking with interesting companies that we think they can bring values in terms of potential, in terms of geography, in terms of use cases. But as you know, uh, an OEM deal can shift easily from one quarter to another because it's a complex deal that is not paying back immediately. That makes sense. Um, you've mentioned geography. Um, Stephanie, sorry, Ale, uh, Stephanie, sorry. Ale wanted to add one point here. Sure. Yeah. Hey, Stephanie. Um, um, the, in addition to what Claudio shared, uh, you know, when we started approaching the OEM market, um, it was it was clear that the HCM um, um, players were particularly interested. What we've observed over time, Claude alluded to this, is that there are other sources of um, uh, addressable market from an OEM perspective. One that we are observing and, and doing some good work in pipeline development is also very reputable system integrators that uh, want to not only um, do system integration per se and so professional services, but bring to market products uh, combined with uh, uh, technology that allows that allows them to serve certain customers that they are already serving or, or, or new markets. And, and we think that opportunity is also very interesting because uh, these firms are, are strategic, they have resources, and they have a deep penetration in the market already. So um, that, that's a new uh, pocket, I would say, of, of players that have shown a great degree of interest for our uh, OEM technology. I thought, I thought you would appreciate that color. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, the, the other question I had was around geographies. Uh, Claudia, you mentioned several times on the call, you know, trying to expand into new geographies. Just curious what areas you're looking to focus on. Yeah, so Stephanie, first of all, sorry if we, if we answer to the, to the question so long, but we really love this kind of conversation and we would like to talk about our business for like five hours. No, exactly. So that's great. If you want to bring the coffee, bring the coffee. We have five hours with you. So um, the question, the question here is: there are markets that uh, have proven to be more resilient to COVID and uh, have a strong internal demand. Let me shoot one name: Germany. Germany is the biggest European market, both in terms of population, size of the company, and uh, need of training and, uh, you know, leadership that the country itself uh, have in Europe. And it's very close in terms of borders, uh, in terms of, sorry, not borders, in terms of, uh, you know, language, culture, and so on and so on. So if there are opportunities to explore these kind of countries, say in Germany, but it's, it's only an example, with a strong internal uh, market, we will be happy to explore the opportunity to, to work in this country and to cover in person. I mean, what, what I mean in person, uh, we, we want to have a footprint there. Uh, we, you know, now with COVID, everything is remote. But uh, we think that in certain countries, it takes time to penetrate the market and to stay in the market, and you can reduce this time of penetration, or you can increase the conversion rate just because you are local and you hire local people that speak the same culture, culture pattern and language that can be a benefit. So, multi-product plus geographic expansion is our strategy to dominate the world. 
great. Thank you. Thank you. Your next question is from Susan Sukumar from 8 Capital. Please go ahead. Good morning, guys, and congrats morning, on the Susan. quarter. How are you? Pretty good, thanks. Pretty good. Um, guys, uh, the first question for me, um, you know, obviously it was really good to see such strong expansion activity this quarter. Uh, could you guys speak a little bit um, more about the kind of profile of these expansion deals? You know, curious if these are just um, a function of expanded seats or, or did they include some um, a level of module adoption as well? Yeah, Alessio? So, um, in, in the context of the of the expansion business, the the way that we manage that business, the upsell and cross sell business, when we expand customers, we focus on two things. One, we focus on the health, happiness, and as well as the success of the customer that we're serving at that very moment within that one or more installations that they have with the other instances. For for better word, yeah. And so the goal there is to maximize adoption, to grow that project, to expand that project to new horizons by adding modules and capabilities. The second area of expansion is looking beyond that very business and understanding whether the organization has either a, a, a parent or sister companies or subs that would benefit from our services, and and those. Um, uh, activities are coordinated uh, by leveraging the the customer experience group that we put together that not only cares about the health of the customer but also analyzes and signals whether there is opportunity for expansion which is then uh, addressed via our account management team so in the context of this engine that doesn't just necessarily look at the D one instance we have had success doing a couple things. Um, for the big expansion in QSR, we have moved from a brand to a multi-brand within a large organization, which has expanded us and added the, um, the uh, additional 24,000 restaurant, which we mentioned in the press, press release. Um, that you can see as an expansion of, of the cross-sell within the same organization, which results in additional seats. The products, in that instance, remain the same. Uh, with regards to um, Syngenta, which we also announced uh, publicly, um, in that instance, we had a project uh, departmental which was very successful and over time the organization needed a broader solution and that corresponded to a true um a true upsell so but, but you know i want to i want to i want to make sure that those are seen in the context of our upsell cross-sell engine which really targets the broad spectrum of the organization beyond the single instance that we may, may be working uh, with at, at one time Got it. Thank you. That, that, that's helpful. And you know, and just kind of talking about you know, the customer success program you guys have. You know, how are you investing in that as part of your ongoing growth investments? Um, and um, how has kind of kind of progress looked like on the land expand opportunity with respect to um, you know, driving more adoption of, of of capabilities and modules? Yeah, Susan. Uh, you know that um, now we Alessio have uh, aggregated under you. Possibilities, not only um, the sales part, but also the customer success. And we just uh, we have, we have recently a great leader uh, coming from the industry. So I let to Alessio uh, articulate this. But the fact that we now customer success and sales works together, uh, like marketing, which uh, one year ago was another uh, independent department and one of the Ducebo. Uh, challenges uh, during the past year was uh, not work as a silos. So now that these three elements work together, uh, we are more confident uh, on uh, that uh, all the benefits, the downfall benefits can happen from upsell to retention 
to catching opportunities, but I'll let her, I'll let her articulate better in uh, tactically what is executing. Uh, I don't want to be too much complimentary, otherwise the guy will relax a lot, referring to Ale, but how, <laughs> how else is executing this? Right. Well, um, uh, Stan, uh, the the answer uh, is um, pretty straightforward. Look, uh, the way we view customer success um, is, um, is is beyond uh, right the customer success or in this case our customer experience department. It's it's about you know it starts very early, market to the right people in the right way, sell in the right way according to capability, implement uh, at excellence at excellence. Continue the account management and customer experience uh, according to segmented best practices by putting the best people working with the right segment of the organization, with the right organization, which in turn is segmented within uh, four segments that are strategic segments for us, and finally support the customers in excellence. So there's no success unless it starts from the very beginning because you can do uh, an incredible job at the tail end of the process, but if you've sold the wrong customers, it's never going to work. And so where we are learning and, and where we are, you know, uh, really investing is ensuring that all these functions are in hyper-synchronization so that by the time the customer is ended off after go-live, the customer is already set up for success. And, okay. and, and that's a big job, but that's what we're pursuing. And, and I hope that answers. No, that's that's uh that's helpful, guys. Um, next question for me. I just wanted to get a get an update on 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 your on your shape offering. Um, I know you guys uh, wrapped up your beta program recently. Just want to get an update on what the feedback has been from users and and how you're thinking about um, kind of incorporating some of that feedback and and what the go to market plan is for that offering going forward. Um, you are referring to the Docebo Shape, the AI, uh, the AI content creator, is it correct? Correct, yeah. Yeah, so you know what's happening, and I want to be blunt. Uh, I know that, uh, you know, my, my, my team don't want me to be blunt, and, uh, and, uh, and they want me, poli me politics, but I am not. So what's happening now uh, is that, oh, sorry, someone is saying shut, the, shut up. I'm no, kidding. I'm, um, I've got an old but I'm nervous. <laughs> um, so you know what's happening? That our R&D department, the the R&D that is creating new products, accelerated so fast and became so efficient that now not only the Chebo Shape is closer to be tested, beta tested by the customer, but also learning analytics but also um, the, uh, new, the other new products that we are building. So what is the main challenge now? It's not the product readiness, and some customers are already using it and they like it, but we cannot release all the products together because we need to learn how to sell multi-product in the company Alessio is specializing and training multiple marketing teams for multiple products. So the situation is bright, but the challenge is incredibly high because we now need to sell more product and we have to learn how to market different products. And it's 15 years that we are selling only one product, the LMS itself. Right. No, and I think that's fair. That's uh growing pains I think uh most uh, most companies go through anyway so good to hear um and and uh maybe one one last one for me guys um uh and maybe this is one for Ian as well um just kind of thinking about the you know the profile of of their of of, of newer customers coming in they're obviously larger and um you seeing higher contract values here. Uh, do, do you guys see any any opportunity to maybe change or, or tweak your your pricing model? Uh, pricing pricing doesn't sit with finance. I'll let Alessio talk about that. Okay. Thank you, Ian. That's very kind of you. Um, I, I will say, <laughs> uh, Satan, um, you know, 
no consideration is a bad consideration. Uh, however, um, when we look at the strategy to continue winning and to continue uh, maximizing results, uh, we think there's a lot more work that we can do um, rather than changing pricing model to um, actually uh, provide customers with what they need to succeed. And what I mean by that, Susan, is we are not only investing every day to make products better, but also we are investing in growing our professional service organization with more capabilities like value-added services to unlock the potential they have in their organization. Um, um, some of this potential sometimes is unexplored, untapped, and results in uh, uh, not the maximum adoption they could have in the system. So rather than uh, sort of uh, uh, using the stick, which is uh, uh, changing pricing, the way we would approach it is um, offering those services that would unlock potential, that would allow customers to make the best out of our software, to use more of our software, and to have a better experience. That's our position at the moment. Makes sense. Thanks, guys. Um, appreciate you taking my questions. I'll pass it along. Thank you. Your next question is from Gavin Fairweather of Cormark Securities. Please go ahead. Oh, hey, good morning. I was hoping uh, you guys could just comment on kind of the early stage of the funnel and how kind of inbound interest and conversion rates have trended kind of throughout summer and into fall. Um, Gavin, thank you for that question. Uh, we continue to see strong momentum uh, uh, on the inbound front. Uh, there is no doubt that at the very beginning and for the couple months subsequent to pandemic, uh, the outbound business uh, generally in the industry uh, had uh, a, a setback. Uh, which was caused uh, pure and simply by the fact that uh, people were not at work anymore. And as you know, the outbound business is based on, uh, uh, relies heavily also on phone connections. And, and those were harder to make when people were working from home. With that in mind, uh, we've been uh, uh, following certain best practices and uh, adjusted and calibrated our efforts to focus on our business development within the base. Um, so we've invested and quickly pivoted certain decisions to empower more of, their, of our people towards account development rather than net new log outbound development. Uh, we have, however, seen a stronger recovery of outbound momentum where it should have been all along uh, in, uh, in the past quarter. We're very happy with the results we're seeing. And, um, you know, outbound success is... Um, is a hard job. We have great teams. We're not only investing in those in North America, but we're scaling, scaling them also in Europe uh, to empower a, a language-based uh, uh, outbound across different regions, because that's necessary. So, you know, in short sums, a strong moment of, of inbound, um, stronger recovery of outbound post-COVID first wave. We'll see if a second wave will cause uh, a slowdown, um, and uh, very, very happy to report that our ADR business is doing fantastic. Okay, that's very helpful. And then maybe for Ian, you, you commented that um, you're beginning to get line of sight on gross margins, kind of trending towards the mid-80s mid level. Do you have a level of scale in mind when you, when you think about that, where you start to get some greater leverage on, on your hosting costs in particular? Yeah, when I try to talk about future um, future levels like that, yeah, I'm I'm usually thinking three to five years out. So if if I take the company where it is today, uh, and and try to guess where we'll be in three years, um, I'll I'll say somewhere 150 to 200 million dollars. Uh, you know, that's that's sort of generically three to five years uh, time frame in my head. Okay, very helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Your next question comes from Richard C. of National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. 
Yes, uh, in regards to acquisitions, is it fair to say that uh, your focus is going to be picking up uh, niche you know, technologies or is there potentially a larger opportunity with some of your bigger competitors? Because if you sort of look at across the board, some of them actually had uh, pretty uh, not so great quarters. And so it seems kind of obvious that you guys are taking the advantage of that. So um, I'm curious to kind of get your feedback on that. On a scale, ciao Richard. Uh, on a scale one to one hundred, my excitement is one. I mean, we we never wanted to buy competitors because we always say that there are risks, implicit risks that are way above the risk we want to take, and the fact that we need to buy competitor, merge technologies. Uh, uh, merge company cultures and so on and so on, it's uh, really uh, something that makes us not excited. And also, it's, it's another kind of business. I mean, there are, in, in this industry now, we are seeing two, three big players playing three, three different games. There is one player which is buying uh, other LMSs. So they are buying revenues and, uh, you know, transferring uh, everything in their main technology, which is one strategy I respect, but not, this is not mine. Um, the second one is uh, try to play the content in the HR side and the LMS side altogether. Our is stick to training and cover all the life cycle of training, from understanding the learning culture to understanding the content, to delivery, to assess through learning impact, and analyze the data. That's where we want to say. The only, but really only, only way I see the shape of buying an LMS, it's uh, an LMS which, uh, which is so small, but in, a, in, a, in, an in, in such interesting country we want to step in, that is more easy to buy these 10 employees, small LMS company than opening an office on its own, but it's something that is very not realistic. So. Coming back to your question, I don't see Docebo making a big acquisition of an LMS vendor. Uh, this is not the statement I, will, I would say if I had to think to some adjacent technology. But uh, as of today, uh, LMS, no big LMS on, on site. Okay, that's fair, thank you. Uh, with respect to this, uh, the AWS uh, new agreement, um, I'm guessing that was a competitive displacement. Um, Ale, was a competitor displacement? I'm sorry. Uh, could you repeat that question, please? Yeah. So the the new agreement with mm -hmm. uh, Amazon Web Services was that a competitive displacement? Um. So. So the team at AWS has used comparable technologies in the past, but never to the extent and depth and of the project and the scale that they plan to achieve with us. So the short answer is no, although they have used comparable technology, but the scope and the project was so much more ambitious that I would say where we beat competition was in the selection process, not in the displacement of it. Okay, fair enough. Uh, and the last one for me, in terms of the 50 people uh, being uh, hired, can you give us maybe a sense of the breakdown of what functions those positions are gonna be in? Yeah. Sure. <clears throat> um, I think if, if, if you had to, had to that's where we're going to end up by the end of December. I would put half of them on the sales and marketing side and the other half into the product. G&A as, as a function is relatively static at this point. Okay, that's great. Thanks, and congrats again on those great results. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. Thank you. There are no further questions at this time. Please proceed. Um, thank you, everyone, for staying with us. 
We always enjoy speaking and talking about our business. And uh, thank you all. Thank you, Ale. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, everyone. Have a nice day. Stay safe. And wear the mask. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes your conference call for today. We thank you for participating, and we ask that you please disconnect your lines. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.